Hi, faces. Hey there. Uh, hey, my name is Kyle. I'm the pastor here at Regen, and uh, super excited to have you here. Super honored to have you here with us uh, as we kick off a new series on the book of James. Uh, the way that we make a big deal out of the Bible at Regen, we believe the Bible is uh, God's written interruption in history. And uh, the way that we kind of work through it together is we call it Netflix binging. So we pick one book at a time, and we kind of just go from beginning to end, nonstop. Uh, sometimes that takes us a little bit of time. Uh, we did one in the winter for four weeks. We did one in the spring and summer for about 20 weeks. Uh, we're going to do the book of James, which is a New Testament book, for 10 weeks. Uh, but thanks for being here. Thanks for, if you're a guest, uh, please don't leave without grabbing holding me and saying hi. Uh, I just love to meet new folks here and... Uh, yeah, stick around after. Um, don't just dart off, you know, try to get to know somebody, say, hey, um, connect a little bit. Um, we would be remiss as the people of Jesus if we didn't uh, stop and acknowledge that this has been a really sucky week in our country, uh, that there's been a lot of uh, violence and just our, our worst selves kind of being present. And so um, I want to pray for that. I occasionally write prayers, and I wrote one for this called Cross-Shaped Eyes. Uh, and so I'm going to pray this, and then we will uh, step into the book of James, all right? So would you bow with me? This is a prayer entitled Cross-Shaped Eyes. Lord Jesus, our mothers used to warn us, don't watch too, too, too much TV or your eyes will turn to squares. And as adults, we wake to find our mother's words ring true. We have televisions and tablets and iPhones and Androids, and they have indeed given us square-shaped eyes. The blue light of our devices glazes them over and slowly blinds them, and though, they, though these devices bring us bad tidings of great sorrow for all people, we cannot see them. Seeing, we do not see. Reading, we do not read. Alton Sterling and Philando Castile and Brent Thompson Patrick Zemaripa and Michael Kroll and Lauren Ahrens and Michael Smith. The names pass over our eyes like the 10 million images we see each day. Though we know we ought to be stunned by sorrow and confused by chaos, we realize to our surprise that we are numbed to pain. The blue light of our screens have dulled our feelings. There is nothing there. Like the lepers you healed of old, like the paralytics you commanded to rise, our hearts, like their limbs, are without sensation, dull, lifeless, unfeeling. And then there's you. You, our suffering king, are acquainted with grief. You, our slaughtered lamb, know what it is to be stricken and afflicted. You, our Yahweh, he who is, know pain deeply, intimately, profoundly, even infinitely. You come to us, eyes squinting with pain, shoulders hunched by the weight of your griefs. You spit in the dirt and make mud. You rub the dirt you made on the dirt you made. And suddenly we see and we discover that square-shaped eyes cannot see what we must see. Only cross-shaped eyes can do that. Like the lepers you healed of old, like the paralytics you commanded to rise, our hearts, like their limbs, start to tingle. They stir to life, and we find that we feel. So we pray, open our eyes, heal our limbs, speak our hearts into feeling, for you have shown us what is good. 
you have told us what you require to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly and falteringly on legs newly healed with eyes freshly opened. We pray this in the name of our cross-shaped God. His name is Jesus. Amen. Amen. Tonight we're starting, like I said, a series in the book of James, and if you want to follow along with me, you can do on the Bible app. Our text for tonight is in there, James 1, 1 through, I don't know, 18. And uh, if not, you can grab the paperback Bible. It's the blue one underneath you. Grab that, flip to the book of James. It's way in the back, which means it's only a couple pages, and you could flip right by it. But my wife tells me it's page. 735 on those blue ones. If you use one of the red ones, that's fine. It's just going to sound a little different. We're in the book of James together for the next 10 weeks, uh, a New Testament book that I'm really, really excited about. And our series is called Faith Has Motion. Faith Has Motion. James is a book about action, about movement, and its thesis or its main point is found in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 24, which says this, but don't just listen to God's word, you must do what it says, otherwise you are only fooling yourselves, for if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror, you see yourself you walk away and you forget what you look like. This, this thesis of doing is echoed in chapter 2, verses 14 and 17. He says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. James insists that faith Faith without, I keep saying face on accident. Faith, that's a good thing I don't have to communicate for a living. Faith without works is dead. Using start language, he wants to remind us that faith has motion. And James is all about pushing us off the chair and into real life. It's about getting us to kind of get our butts in gear spiritually and get down to work. Um, and so we're going to see this throughout the book of James. We're going to have a couple different preachers. I'm really excited about that. But I just want to give us a scale of things. If you're not super familiar with the Bible, you kind of know there is a timeline, but you don't know exactly where we are on that timeline. And so if you've been with us, we've been in the Old Testament book of Exodus for about 20 weeks. As we leap to James, we're fast forwarding about 3,000 years into the future. So we've entered the land Israel has, they've had some judges, they've had some kings, the kingdom is divided, one kingdom gets destroyed, the other's carried in captivity, they come back, they build a new temple, a few other things happen, there's 400 years of silence, we turn the page into the New Testament, Jesus is born, Jesus lives, Jesus dies, and then in AD 62, a guy named James puts pen to paper as he's pastoring his church. And the reason that this is phenomenal is that James is the half-brother of Jesus who was entirely unconvinced that Jesus was God for most of his life. And so uh, if you're skeptical about the claims of Jesus, if you're skeptical about the claims of the New Testament, of the Bible, uh, you're not alone because the very half-brother of Jesus, his name was James, was with you. James, by the way, is the half-brother of Jesus because Jesus' mom is Mary 
He, she was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, says the Gospels, but Mary and Joseph had their own, you know, I don't know, normal babies. I don't know what, he, what, is, what is the opposite of, of, you know, immaculate conception or something. I don't know. So uh, what we have, uh, so yeah, immaculate, immaculate conception. With, and so James uh, is raised with Jesus and doesn't believe that Jesus is God. In fact, when Jesus begins his public ministry, there's these texts in the Gospels where Jesus is teaching publicly, and, and it says uh, Jesus' mother and brother and sisters were outside trying to seize him to get him to stop, which you would too if your brother, who you were raised in Egypt with, who you smelled his farts, who you, 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 you played kickball with him, you did all of these things, and now he's like, oh, by the way, I'm God. You also would be like, okay, Jesus, time to go home. (laughs) And yet something happens. Something happens that years later, James becomes fully convinced by the claims of Jesus's divinity. So much so that he opens the letter of James by calling himself a slave of the Lord Jesus. Now listen, I have little brothers. I didn't even like to like play a game where I was less than them. You know what I mean? And now he says, I'm a slave of my brother Jesus. And that thing that happened is the resurrection of Jesus. So you might not believe the claims of your brother's divinity if you know, he died and we CPR'd him back to life if we resuscitated him. But if there was a resurrection, if Jesus was dead and dead and dead and then come back, then something is going to happen. And James sees this happen, is a witness to the resurrection and suddenly finds himself having stepped across the line of faith. And after uh, Jesus ascends into heaven and the church is born, Jesus, bec- uh, Jesus James becomes a, a pillar in the church in Jerusalem. And so James is putting pen to paper though. You see, it says this letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad, greetings. So you see, Jesus ascends, the church is born and the gospel message explodes. People say, I've never seen this before. And so something really crazy happens. They start gathering and worshiping him and doing good works and all of these, I don't know, like as if they took Jesus seriously instead of just, you know, sitting in church for an hour every once in a while. They start doing this and, 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 and there's a problem because Jesus represented a political threat to the Roman government and the Jewish government of the first century in Palestine. And so, by the way, this is just a footnote, but if Jesus has never questioned your politics, you're not worshiping Jesus. Because Jesus has always, always uh, been on the outside of the watchwords of the empire. And so Jesus starts this movement, which is equally problematic for the Roman government and the Jewish authorities that kind of act as their puppet. And so they begin a process of systematic oppression and persecution against Christians in, in Jerusalem. And so ultimately what happens is they flee the city. You may be familiar, like you retreat to advance. This is the move I try to make every time I play Risk, but I mostly spend time retreating. 
um, but sometimes you re strategically retreat to advance as, as God's people flee Jerusalem and spread around the known world, which are those countries kind of around the Mediterranean Sea, the gospel explodes. And now these Jewish Christians are living in cities, starting communities, and they're like, hey, James, we kind of need some help to understand what we're supposed to be doing. And so James writes a letter to the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes are in quotes because after, uh, around the time of the destruction of the temple, some stuff happens in Israel and the 12 ethnic tribes, 10 of them kind of get mixed in with other blood. And so we know of only really two pure tribes of blood of Israel now, Benjamin and Judah. But what he's really saying is that these Jewish believers, these 12 tribes, these exiles, he wants them to be equipped. And by the way, this letter is for us too, because if you've stepped across the line of Jesus, you're, there's been a change in your citizenship. If you've stepped across the line of faith, put your faith in Jesus, ask Jesus into your heart, you aren't from here anymore. Your citizenship is in heaven, is what scripture says. And so James is trying to write to all of us and help us understand to live this Christian life. And he's writing to people uh, in suffering. And so he begins his letter about suffering. And so if you are here tonight and life sucks right now, you got here just in time. Sometimes when I was young in my church planting days, I always thought about planting a church called the Church of the Suffering. Because I think that's just a more honest name. Because let me tell you, if you're not walking through something hard right now, it's probably because you just finished up or just like wait a couple more seconds and here it comes. And so this is why James is real. James chapter one, verses two through four say this, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come of any kind, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow so let it grow. That's that song, right, uh, from Disney. Let it grow, let it grow. Sorry, it's not as good. It's not as good. I, I did it this morning, and it was funnier. <laughs> but I thought I'd try it again. <clears throat> anyway, seriously, uh, so let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. What James says in these first two verses of his letter are to the average eye absolutely insane because he says when something bad happens to you, when the blank hits the fan, I want you to see that. And he says, I want you to say, I'm going to count this as joy. And if you want to know that Jesus has been working in your life, it's when a sentence that sounded insane a few weeks ago, or even that sounds insane when you first hear it, begins to make sense the more you think about it. And so hopefully this begins to make sense as we look at this. I want to unpack it a little bit. And the first word that I think we should unpack, unpack is this. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come. When, not if. Not, dear brothers and sisters, if you happen to accidentally sneeze your way into a problem, uh, then count it all joy. No, James says, when. Suffering for the people of Jesus is not optional. And so if you are looking for a religion of comfort, you need to go find something else, because this ain't it. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, and so do we. Suffering is the norm for some of us, not the out of norm. See, some people are like all the time, they're full. They're full and then they are interrupted by hungry. 
Listen to me, I am hungry interrupted by full. And many of us are living lives of suffering interrupted by not as opposed to not interrupted by suffering. Do you see what I mean? And James says, when. A, a pastor I was listening to to kind of prepare for this said, you know what, you do better in a fight if you know you're going to have a fight. Obviously, I've fought a lot of people. <laughs> and uh, James says, James is trying to help his people know there's a fight coming. When you face troubles of various kinds or troubles of any kind, and this is the next piece, James talks about troubles of any kind. So while he's writing particularly to Christians facing persecution, that is, they are opposed and being chased after and hunted down because of their faith, James turns this into a Mad Lib. You know what a Mad Lib is? You know, you kind of like fill in a noun and an adjective and a verb. James is letting us fill in the blank on what kind of trouble comes our way. When troubles of any kind, or another translation would say trials of various kinds. Can I tell you what I've learned over the last three months? It's that most of us are suffering most of the time. And you know, there's that cute Facebook thing that's like, be kind, because every person that you meet is walking through something hard, which is a little corny, but I think true. I think, it's, it, I think it does us all better to assume that somebody's walking through something I don't know about, and they're doing the best they can with that, Helps me be a little more gracious. Helps me set boundaries better, as a side note. James wants you to fill in the blank. So as we talk more about this, fill in the blank. I don't know what your trouble is. I don't know if it's cancer or illness or cancer of a loved one or illness of a loved one. It's some family drama. It's some friendship drama. It's the finances are tight. I don't know what it is. Fill in the blank. James says, when we are suffering from anything, we are to count it as joy. And not just joy, great joy. Some of you know that the New Testament was written in Greek, so every once in a while I'll go back, look at what the Greek says to make sure we're just really understanding everything right. Sometimes stuff gets lost in translation, translation a little bit, you miss something. So I went back, I said, what does this word joy mean in Greek? Can I tell you what it means? It means joy. It says, count it all joy. And not just a little bit of joy, not just a spoonful of joy. We're talking a pitcher full, cup running over, joy. And my question is, how is it possible for us to count the sucky things of our lives as joy? How is it possible for us to look at the awful things that are happening to us and say, this is a good thing. I'm glad this is happening. Let me tell you what happens. When you look at your suffering with the eyes of faith, something changes. Let me tell you what the goal of walking with Jesus is. When you step across the line of faith and you begin to journey with Jesus, it is a lifelong process of making Jesus your highest treasure. It is, it is the lifelong process of making Jesus your highest treasure. And Jesus is our highest treasure because he's our eternal treasure. I will spend my eternal life in Christ, which is forever, finding new ways to treasure him more and more, which means that death isn't real. For those of us who by faith have laid hold of Jesus and made him our highest treasure, he's the only thing that we're afraid of losing, and we can't. Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of Christ. And so ultimately when we walk through suffering, if you were to get real about what your biggest fear is, it's that like I'm going to die or what I value most will be taken from me. 
But when Jesus is our highest treasure, this is important, when Jesus is your highest treasure, what you treasure most and what you love most cannot be taken from you. It means that death isn't real. It means that then, when Jesus becomes your highest treasure, can I tell you what, here's another weird thing that happens to you when you're sticking around Jesus. Your greatest desire is to be more like him. That's it. That's all I really need. I mean, in my best, best moments, like right now, can I tell you the only thing I really want? I I don't need an Xbox 360. I I don't need a different car. I I don't need this relationship to work better or more of this or more of that. I just want to be more like Jesus. And we can count our suffering as joy if there's a guarantee that it makes us more like Jesus. And that's what James says. He says, consider it an opportunity for great joy. How? For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance or perseverance or steadfastness has a chance to grow. So let it grow for when your endurance is fully developed or your perseverance or your steadfastness is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. In other words, you will have reached the end. You will have crossed the finish line. You will be complete. Listen, I can count my suffering as joy. I can count the hardest moments of my life, which, by the way, have been like, was like a month and a half ago. Uh, And I can look at that and through the eyes of faith say that my suffering is not all there is. This is not the end of the story. And that all of these things, I can actually on some level, somewhere in my soul say, this is a joyful thing because it is helping me have more of Jesus. That there's nothing that I can walk through that is going to take Jesus away from me. So let's go. And I know that this is hard to hear. Some of you in this room are walking through really, really, really hard stuff. But in the thousand, thousand upon thousand upon thousand year lifespan that we will live in the presence of Jesus for eternity, the trials of our life are, as scripture calls, light and momentary afflictions. Because we're going to get to heaven and we're going to see Jesus and it's going to be like, I don't even care anymore. I mean, that, that is why heaven is awesome. That is how we can count all these things as joy. But let me tell you the truth. This is where it gets real. The reality of the emotional weight of our trials and troubles and suffering and griefs is not magically lifted by Jesus. If you're walking through a hard thing, it's, I, I hate Christian pop culture that kind of promotes this idea that like if I read my Bible, I emotionally feel better. That is like maybe the case, like one out of every 20 times I read my Bible and I don't feel better, I just have slightly different perspective. I'm tired of this idea that Jesus in my life kind of wishes away and magics away all of my gross, ugly feelings. Because let me tell you the truth, the people that James is writing to, their life sucks. And nothing that James can say is going to make that go away. When you walk through a hard thing, it hurts. There is sadness. There is grief. It is deep and real and sharp and poignant. All of those feelings are real, and it doesn't go away. Look at what James says. This is going to be a hard process. He uses the passive voice. He says, let your endurance grow. In other words, kind of just got to take it. You kind of got to be a passive participant in a process that makes you more like Jesus. That's why it hurts. 
That's why it hurts. And yet the promise of James, I don't want to be trite, and I've hesitated to use this, but I think it's true. Um, Zach, Zach's a trainer. He's he's my trainer. He has this shirt, and it says, no pain, N-O, no pain, no gain. Okay, but then there's these like faded K's and W's on either side of the nose. So it also says like no pain, no gain. And, and that's a, that, that could oversimplify, which is something I'm over, always hesitant to do, but there is something that happens when we know pain. We experience gain, we experience growth. The prom, let me get down to this. The promise of the New Testament is no sucky thing that happens to you will ever be wasted. God is not a God of replacing. God is a God of redeeming. And so in the midst of your trial, God does not say, allow me to take that and give you this happy thing. He says, I'm going to enter in and I'm going to walk with it with you. What does Psalm 23 say? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It does not say, though you give me a pleasant detour around the valley of the shadow of death. He says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. See, the promise of the New Testament is that Jesus shows up in this stuff with us. And so James wants us to see our trials clearly. And I don't know about you, but when I've been walking through trials, even lately, I have sometimes thought to myself, what I really need in this is more money. I thought, if I just had more money, I could make this go away. It would make this bill smaller. We could have nice cars at the very least while we're doing this. We could have this or that or the other thing. I thought money is what I need. But James echoes the words of theologian Notorious B.I.G. who once said, who once said, mo money, mo problems. And he does so. He does so with these words. If you got look at this with me, it's not going to be on the screen. Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower droops and falls and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all their achievements. I thought that was an interesting move for James. Like, we're talking about suffering. He talks about wisdom for a second, and then he says, oh, by the way, money, you don't need it. And I thought, that's because when I'm in a trial, I think if I had some money, at least this might be a little more enjoyable. Like, at least I could go out for dinner or something. Do you know what I mean? Like, at least, at least I could go to Starbucks every day. At least, you know, and, and, and here's the deal. The more and more I get to know people with a lot of money, their problems aren't any smaller. Uh, their problems aren't any different. They're just more expensive. Tell you what, that family drama you're working through really doesn't get better if you say, here, just have this $200. Do you know how we know? Like, I think, like, that's every movie ever. Like, isn't that like every person is spoiled and the money doesn't help? Here's what James says that we really need. We don't need wealth. We need wisdom. Look at verse 5. He says, if you need wisdom, he moves right out of that verse. You'll be complete lacking and needing nothing. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for such a person is, with, for such a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. It's back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. 
Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Why? For their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. That word loyalty is divided. James coins this in Greek, and it's actually literally double-souled. It's like they have two souls. And my English friends talk about being in two minds. Like instead of saying like, oh, I can't decide, English people say like, oh, I'm in two minds about it. Which I think is a very classy thing because sometimes, in, sometimes what, we're, what we are is we're in two minds. We face a trial. We don't know what to do. We're in two, three, four, eight dozen minds about how to move forward. And, and, and what James says is what we don't need in trials, we don't need wealth. We need wisdom. Let me tell you what wisdom is. Wisdom is knowing the right thing to do at the right time in the right way in the right circumstance. Wisdom says this is what your next step is. And let me tell you what. I'll take wisdom over wealth in a trial every time because when a trial hits you, your first thought is, I have no idea what to do. I mean, who gets a diagnosis for cancer and says, I got this. I know exactly what to do. There's something called chemotherapy, like we like rub it on them. And then I, like what, we don't know what that means when financial crisis hits our family. We, I, we don't know what the next step is. We might have a guess. What I need when I'm in suffering, when I'm in a trouble, when I'm in a trial is I need to know what the heck I'm supposed to do next. And hear me on this. Our daddy's got deep pockets, but it's not, they're not, pockets filled with Washingtons and Jeffersons, the currency of the kingdom is wisdom. That's the prosperity gospel. God wants you to be prosperous in wisdom. He does not give a rip about what car you drive. He does not give a rip about the clothes that you wear. He is not at all interested if you like send a little seed money over here that will bless you and blah, blah, blah. Here's what he's interested in, that you know the next step to take. And the presence of God in your life is an extra one and a half seconds when you face any decision to know the right thing to do. And a promise, a promise from James, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. When it comes to wisdom, God is like, where do I sign the check? When, I, when, when, God, when it comes to wisdom, God is like, yeah, I'll give you cash. Or I, I've got cash, I've got credit, I've got check. He's got all forms of this. He's like, I just want to get you wisdom. What you need is wisdom. We need to know the right thing to do in the right way, which is, by the way, wisdom says that two people in the same circumstance might not need to do the same thing. That's how wisdom and knowledge are different. Wisdom is a slightly appropriate gray area. Wisdom says person A and person B, though walking through the same crisis, may require two different responses, which is why stop saying, remove from your vocabulary the following quote, I know exactly how you feel. Because unless you have like crawled inside the inside out control room of my brain, uh, you do not know exactly how I feel because you are not me and I am not you. So instead of saying, I know exactly how you feel, no, you don't. People say that to me and I've actually said to them, no, you don't. That's nice of you to think, but you don't. This is actually harder than what you think it is. This is why you say instead, I can't imagine how hard this must be for you. I can't imagine how hard this must be for you. Because you don't. Even if you've walked through the same thing, oh, I know exactly how you feel. No, you don't. Stop saying that. Because wisdom says what I might need to do in this situation and what you had to do in that situation, probably different. And I can ask you, I might pull you and you might give me a clue. Wisdom is gained when we ask without doubting. He wants us, as Elaine prayed, to just get up in his face and ask. 
and not do this like Jesus and. I'm going to ask God for wisdom and just make sure Oprah approves. Don't do that. That's being double-sold. Don't do Jesus and, do Jesus only. Don't do Jesus and Oprah, Jesus and my counselor, Jesus and my best friend who doesn't love Jesus. Just go with Jesus only. Have it be informed by our friends who love Jesus. Have it be informed by wise sources. James used that word test. At that beginning, he said, for you know that when your faith is tested. See, I hear that word test, and I start to wonder if God wants to test me like my high school girlfriend would test me. Do you see what I'm saying? If the tests that God puts me in are intended to find out, help him find out if I really love him or not. See, I often say uh, that God doesn't play games. But can I tell you the truth? I've actually revised that uh, because sometimes it feels like God plays games. Sometimes it feels like God puts in front of you that thing that you wanted and you felt like it was a gift from him. And then before you know it, it's like the rug is out from under you. It's like God set the table and did that like um, tablecloth thing, but took everything with it. Here's what he's, here's the test that comes out on the other side of this. What, what comes out in suffering is whether we believe God to be our adversary or our ally in our suffering. What comes out is whether or not we believe God to be our adversary or our ally. And, if, and in our suffering, if we start to feel like God is actually playing games with us, we're actually coming to believe that he's our adversary. Because look, uh, look at 12 through 15. He says, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And remember, when you are being tempted, don't say, God is tempting me. Don't say, God is playing games with me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else, James says. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful action, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. See, what starts to happen in suffering is we begin to think, maybe God is playing games with me, maybe God isn't in my corner on this, maybe he is in my corner, but he's also playing both corners, and so we start to doubt, we start to get nervous, and we start to think God is playing games, and James says, don't think that. James says, don't think that. He says, remember that God is your ally in your suffering. Look at verses 16 through 18. James says, don't be misled. My dear brothers and sisters, whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heaven. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word and we, and we out of all creation became his prized possession. That's very reminiscent of Exodus, right? That you are my treasured possession, my royal priesthood, my kingdom of priests. Listen, in your suffering, we start to forget that God is a good, good father. In trial and temptation and suffering and hard stuff, we begin to get this crooked picture of God. We believe that he's our adversary. And James says, no, no, no. He's your ally in the midst of the hard thing. It's his desire to give you what is good and perfect and only whatever and only what is good and perfect, which comes down from him. He created all the lights in the heavens. There's 
Neither a, he does not change. There's not a shifting shadow. Listen, guys, I, uh, if you're on the fence about following Jesus, now's probably a good time to get out because it's going to get really hard. Or let me say this. If you're on the fence about following Jesus and you're thinking that maybe if I follow him, my life will be easier, that is both true and untrue. It is untrue in the sense that like Jesus doesn't magic away into Harry Potter land, the stuff that's hard. Uh, but it is true in the sense that he walks with us in it. It is true that he is the father of lights. It is true that he comes along to give us every good and perfect gift in the midst of that. And, and he comes along to tell us that um, we move towards suffering. Let me tell you what the way of Jesus is. Here's the motion of our faith. We move towards suffering. We move toward suffering. The people of Jesus in any way, shape, or form have never done this thing of, ooh, scary, let's run away. This is why this whole ISIS thing is making me nuts because baby boomer Christians are like, we got to freak out and tell President Obama to get serious about this. And that, listen, it's been way worse for our brothers and sisters. It's way worse right now for our brothers and sisters in places like China. It's been way worse historically for our brothers and sisters. And at no point did the people of Jesus ever see it getting hard and say, let's go hide. They always said, that's the hard spot, let's go. The motion of our faith is toward hard things. The motion of our faith is that when a trouble comes into your life, when the family drama, when the financial crisis, when the church drama, when the when the friend drama, when, when the diagnosis, when the, um, the illness, that when we see those things, we don't like try to creep away. Instead, we lean into those things because the motion of our faith tells us that when we lean into those things, they do something for us, that it's not the end of the story, that there's not the end of the story, that there's something more that happens, that uh, as A.W. Tozer would say, nature's wonders follow the plow. A.W. Tozer was a pastor that was prolific uh, in the 20th century, mostly. Uh, super funny, when I was at my master's program, we all had to pick like a Christian mentor to write a paper on, and a guy in our class loved A.W. Tozer, and so he was so excited to like read A.W. Tozer and write about him, and in the process, he found out that A.W. Tozer's marriage was crap. In fact, when A.W. Tozer died, his wife, uh, uh, his wife remarried, and she said whatever his name, A.W. Tozer's name, I can't remember what it was, he loved God, but my new husband loves me. Oh! So husbands, be aware. And, uh, but A.W. Tozer says this, and this is where I want to close before we take communion. Um, Sid, I'll read it, but it'll be on the screen behind me too, if that's okay. The fallow field is smug, contented, protected from the shock of the plow and the agitation of the harrow, but it is paying a terrible price for its tranquility. Never does it see the miracle of growth. Never does it feel the motions of mounting life, nor see the wonders of bursting seed, nor the beauty of ripening grain. Fruit it can never know because it is afraid of the plow and the harrow. In direct opposite to this, the cultivated field has yielded itself to the adventure of living. The protecting fence has opened to admit the plow, and the plow has come as plows always come, practical, cruel, businesslike, and in a hurry. Peace has been shattered by the shouting farmer and the rattle of machinery. 
The field has felt the travail of change. It has been upset, turned over, bruised, and broken, but its rewards come hard upon its labors. The seed shoots up into the daylight, its miracle of life, curious, exploring the new world above it. All over the field, the hand of God is at work, and the age-old and ever-renewed service of creation, new things are born to grow, mature, and consummate the grand prophecy latent in the seed when it entered the ground. He says, nature's wonders follow the plow. Listen, pain has this process of getting into the soil of our life, and it digs in there and it turns it up and it turns it upside down. This is why change and trouble are so, troubles and trials are so hard because you feel like everything you knew has flipped. Just like the soil as the plow goes by has flipped. And yet untilled and unplowed soil never sees the miracle of life. But when we yield ourselves to the plow, when we yield ourselves to his leading, we find that after the pain, after the heartache, after the deep crushing burden of sorrow, there's this little sprout in our lives that wasn't there before. And that's why it is possible to say, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face troubles of any kind, for the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, when it has done its work, will let you be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Hey, let's pray and then we'll take communion. Jesus, you uh, lead us on paths that if you had asked us, we would have rather not taken, and yet you say that even on those paths, you're with us. Jesus, you come barreling into the fields of our hearts and our lives, and that your, your plow hurts. And yet you do it with this terrible t- tenderness. You do it with this uh, overwhelming uh, agitation. Jesus, help us to trust you. God, I pray for my dear friends here that are in pain right now. Jesus, I pray that you would come alongside them in a way that only you can do, that you would comfort, that you would guide, that you would sustain, that you would not, uh, that even in the absence of you just changing our emotions, that Father, you would come alongside and equip and empower and even just walk with us. And so, Father, help us to count it joy because we get to treasure you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. At Regen, uh, we always use this time at the end of the sermon to kind of respond to God and celebrate what he said. And so if you plan on giving tonight, you remember you can do that on the app. There's a basket with envelopes in that wall over there. Uh, and then communion, as the band sings, uh, you kind of come forward, I rip you off a piece of bread, I put it in your hand, and uh, then you take that bread and you dip it in the cup, your $20 word for that is, intinction. Uh, use that in casual conversation tomorrow. And allow me to intinct this donut into my coffee. And, uh, and uh, here's my problem with communion. Jesus comes to us and says that his way is a broken way. See, I'm in my worst moments looking for a God who's just fine with the loaf like this. And and yet Jesus says ours is a broken way, that uh, we have to be cracked open. Uh, My problem with this is that Jesus 
gives us images of brokenness and images of blood spilled. And I want a God of comfort. And yet my king led the way through pain and grief and sorrow. And most of his great pain and grief and sorrow, by the way, was mine. It was my sin that held him there. It was my afflictions. It was my griefs. And yet by those stripes, by that work done on a cross that was a lot uglier than that, we are healed. And in this meal, we are nourished and strengthened. This is not any mere act of calling to mind. This is an act of experiencing the presence of Jesus. Our ancestors called the communion table a means of grace. It's a, sp- it's a spigot that we open up every week and we get to drink afresh so that the, the journey ahead of us, it's not easier. It's not always lighter, but at least we don't have to do it on empty stomachs. And so um, just to totally mix it up, Vanessa uh, and Lindsay, would you help me do communion? You guys can come while I bless the meal. Um, Father, pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup that they might become to us the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, not because like some oogie-googie voodoo stuff, but that you turn on the spigot so that we can encounter you and not go without empty stomachs. God, forgive us for uh, skirting danger and uh, harm so quickly and instead lead us in your broken way. pray in Jesus' name, amen.